Hey everyone, I'm Michael Davidson, the host of this podcast. Two things are true. I love people and I love ideas. So let me tell you what Alder is. Alder is a community of wildly influential people who are committed to making the world freer and better for future generations. It's about people and ideas. It's about living a legacy, not waiting to leave one. You can really think of Alder as a force that brings together some amazing minds and hearts and talent and helps amplify the impact that they have in the world. So please tune in, listen up, and get ready to nerd out with me. Okay, I'd love to introduce my friend Ben Everard. So Ben is our guest today. He's a longtime friend of mine. He's a longtime member of Alder. He's also uh, a Hollywood producer and a, a recovering but successful litigator. He's a creative thinker. He's a really committed citizen. He's a dad. He's a husband. And he's a pretty freaking influential guy in business, politics, and culture. Ben, both in our community as a leader in our community, but also just in the country at large, given his role in the entertainment industry, he's a pretty darn influential guy. He's also produced movies like Yes Day, Lights Out, and he was also a producer of the recently released Pain Hustlers. Now, right now, he has a movie coming out called Family Switch, starring Jennifer Garner and Ed Helms. It comes out this week on November 30th, and it's streaming on Netflix. It's an awesome way to connect with your family, open up your hearts, open up your minds this holiday season. So we hope you guys enjoy it. Now, let's dig in with Ben. Awesome, Ben. Let's talk. I'm excited about this. You're, you're a longtime buddy of mine. I feel like you and I have grown up together. and We still are. We still are growing up together. And, but the only difference is that now you're a big deal Hollywood producer. I remember, if I could do a little plug about you before we even get into this, I remember when you were getting out of the law profession and you know, you're, you're a lawyer at an elite law firm. You were an associate, I believe, but it wasn't one of the best of the best, the blue chip. And you started trying to be a producer. And I remember I introduced you to somebody as a producer. We were in LA. And you go, no, 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 not yet. I can't say I'm a producer yet because I haven't produced anything. And I go, look at that. Look at that character and integrity and, uh, right there alive and well in, in LA and Hollywood. I think it's because of your, your roots. But I think it goes to show that you're a person who really wants to earn and demonstrate and achieve. And you, you keep your values intact while you're doing that. I appreciate you saying that. And I think there's also, you know, in LA, I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, call themselves producers that haven't produced anything. And so it's one way to sort of stand out in some respects. So yes, there's an, there's a side to it that I didn't want to call myself that until I actually did it. So that title did have value and meaning to me, but you know, it also kind of stands out <laughs> to be the one producer that doesn't call himself that. You feel a bit of a target on your back there. Yeah. Oh man. So we're going to talk about Family Switch, the movie, but, and also I think what it says about our culture and what it says about what matters. But we'll also talk about a bit of your story in that journey into entering Hollywood life. And, and a little, I'd, I'd love to get a little bit of like, what is that even like and what do people mean? But first, first, I've been fortunate to see the movie and it was awesome. Watched it with all the kids and Jenny and we had a blast. It actually was also able to keep Bo's attention, Bo's four, and it was able to keep his attention. And then the other kids uh, had some good laughs because one thing that I love about the movie is it, it kind of tells the story from everybody's point of view. You know, you get the kid's point of view, you get the parent's point of view, how we grow together. So first, just from, from your point of view, tell us about Family Switch. And yes, we know big deal actors, Ed Helms, Jennifer Garner, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. It's going to be everywhere, family holiday movie. But from, from your point of view, what do you love about the story? Yeah, look, first of all, I'm very glad to hear that your whole family enjoyed the film because that was precisely the goal, right? I would say one of the, one of the holy grails of Hollywood films today, at least on the development acquisition side, from a studio's perspective, is to get a movie that can be what's called a co-viewing experience, right? A film that a five-year-old or a four-year-old like Bo but also a 95-year-old you know, grandma who's, who's over for the holidays or uh, for a weekend that everybody can sit down on the couch and watch together, right? And, and you know, Disney Pixar has kind of owned that lane for the last 20 years or so, right? Those Pixar films, which, you know, they're, they seemingly on the surface are kids' movies, right? A Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, Toy Story. They really have very deep thematic, issues that they present and deal with and tell a story about. And, and the characters are, are really compelling. And 
And that lane is, is for me, my perspective, I think like that's the North star is to try to do something that you can enjoy if you're a child, but you can also enjoy on almost a totally different level if you're an adult. And I think the great Pixar Disney movies tend to do that with regular success. But in the live action space, it's been harder to do. And I think, again, I think part of that is because Disney Pixar has just really owned that lane. And the studios just haven't really invested a lot in that live action co-viewing, call it family type film. And so yesterday, I think, was a version of that, right? Yesterday was a movie that we made that came out a couple of years ago, also starring the lovely Jennifer Garner. And it really found an audience. Something north of 100 million people saw that movie in the first 28 days of its release, which is a pretty massive audience from any perspective. And so we tried to emulate or repeat a version of that success with Family Switch. And again, it's a, it's a movie that I, you know, I'm very glad to hear you say that your entire family, yourself and your kids, all were able to sit down on the couch together and enjoy because I don't think there's a lot of, of live action material that qualifies in that regard. And when I say live action, one of the things that I mean by that, I love the Pixar movies to be very clear, but if you're watching something like Finding Nemo, it's hard for a child to relate directly to Nemo because he's a cartoon fish, right? Versus if you see a young actor, a five-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old on screen, you can sort of see a version of yourself through that character. And, and to your point, I think there is an entry point for every member of the family in, in the movie Family Switch. So you've got mom and dad who are Jen Garner and Ed Helms, really dynamic actors, fantastic people around the country just know who they are and, and recognize them and want to be a part of that story or that family or that journey. But then you also populate the film with a couple of just really great teen actors, Emma Myers, who was a star, co-star of Wednesday, which was like the biggest hit in the history of, of Netflix. They did a screening of the movie last night in New York City at the Paris Theater of Family Switch. And Jen Garner introduced the film with Emma Myers and the people just lost their mind when Emma Myers was there because Wednesday is such a, a cultural zeitgeist hit for that you know teen audience. And it was reflected in the screams that were recorded from the theater of just you know loving the fact that she was there. And then the movie also has an entry point like for Bo, right? Your four-year-old where we've got a baby in the movie and the baby switches with the dog. And that adds a lot of, of great physical comedy in a very sophisticated way. And it also has Rita Moreno, who's 93 years old and plays a critical role in the movie. And again, it's like from the five-year-old to the 95-year-old to the dog in the family to everyone in between, we tried to give you some sort of point of entry. And you know, hopefully we were successful in that regard. I actually really appreciate that when I asked you to sort of summarize the movie, you, you, your entry point was about the shared experience for the audience watching the movie. And so I, I have a question for you about that. But first, and it, it made me really reflect on one thing I love to do with our family is, is we watch either shows or movies and have certain different holiday traditions now that we're in the holidays. And by the way, Family Switch, while it takes place around the holidays, it's not limited as a holiday movie at all. You can, you can watch it at any time. But on that topic, one, about just the shared experience and how that brings to life some connection and draws you together. I'm also curious about what, what are holiday movies or traditions that you like with your family? And so I'm going to share one just responding to what, what your point was about the audience coming together and how it shapes them. I love it when I'm watching a movie with the kids. Our favorite holiday movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe that's mine. That's mine. They, you know, maybe some of the other kids yeah. might say I'm alone or something like that. But yeah. I love watching It's a Wonderful Life. And I love the backstory of how in real life he was a World War II veteran and he really poured himself into it. It was discovered later as terms of getting popular. But every single year when we watch the movie, I cry every single year. And sometimes I cry at different parts. And it's a special moment when my kids will look at me and go, are you crying again? I'm like, yes. So I'm trying to just model the, the vulnerability and, and the, the themes and bringing those themes to life together. But you only get that if you're experiencing it together and prioritizing something that you could enjoy together. Well, look, I'll tell you a couple of things on that point. First, being able to re-experience a film with your kids that you remember from your childhood is one of the great sort of two hour moments that a parent can have. And 
I can distinctly remember I showed, so I've got a, a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old and the nine and the eight-year-old more so because four-year-olds watching a two-hour movie, it's to your point, it's a little bit harder to engage the full attention there. But like I've revisited some of the classics from my childhood with my kids, right? So I've shown them The Sandlot and E.T. And sort of when you're the parent knowing that there's a big moment in the movie coming, I have a lot more fun instead of watching the screen, watching the kids react to the screen, right? And to see that that jaw drop at a critical moment, you know, of a twist in the storyline or or whatever it may be. I think one of the one of the more fun experiences I had revisiting a movie with my kids recently was actually I showed them Rocky, which is one of my all-time favorites. Yes. Right? The making of that movie is incredible. There's a lot of things to love about that film. But in the third act climax of the film where, you know, Stallone is fighting Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed in the movie, my kids were on their feet on the couch, like jumping up and down with anxiety and excitement and just true sort of, they were absolutely emotionally invested in the story and the movie in that moment. And like, that's the goal is to try to emulate that experience, you know, for my kids and for kids everywhere in some capacity when you're making a movie like this, right? Can you capture a moment where their jaws are just going to hit the floor or they're going to tear up to your point. If you can capture that emotion and, and make them laugh kind of along the way, it's a, that's a, it's an incredible, incredible experience. And the, the film in our family's life that we revisit again and again and again for the holidays is Home Alone. It works on every level and it's <laughs> my kids absolutely love And they're just in that age where, you know, they directly relate to Kevin and it's a wish fulfillment premise of mom and dad are gone and here I, I got to protect the house. And then it's done very comedically well. But like what people I think underappreciate about a film like that is you've got Joe Pesci coming off an Academy Award nomination, right? Who's going to do now a family movie. And the score of that film is John Williams, who does Spielberg movies and did the Star Wars anthem. And like, so you've got one of the, in my opinion, the greatest living musician on the planet, John Williams, doing the score for that holiday family movie. And when you go back and revisit it, you realize that, wow, the, the score of that movie elevates it, right? And the performances of the actors, Joe Pesci, Academy Award winner, elevates the movie. And you've got direction from Chris Columbus, who goes on to, of course, do you know, Harry Potter. And it's like, it's one of the reasons that movie works as well as it does is because you've got just heavyweights at every level of the production. And that's something that I think, you know, I and we try to emulate doing in, in our movie making process is to bring you know i like to say tom brady at every position right every role in a movie is absolutely critical and it's not just the people on screen of course you want to anchor it with a jennifer garner and an ed helms like we do in family switch but the same is true of of your production designer and and the grip and the gaffer and and the costume designer and every single one of these roles is either additive to the end result of of the product or not right and you want to make it 1% better over here and 2% better over there and 3% better over here. And you start to add that up over the course of the movie. And all of a sudden, you know, you take something from here to here. And that's that's the goal every single time. I, I actually had, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about that, about how you think about the movie making. I have one more question on, on Family Switch itself. For you, how does it translate to sort of real life takeaways? I think from 10,000 feet, right? The body switch sub. And first of all, like it, it feels lowbrow, you know, on its face, right? And not very sophisticated. But if you look through the sort of the Rolodex of movies within that subgenre, you get big, you get Jumanji, the reboot, right? It's a body switch movie. You get, I would argue Mrs. Doubtfire is a body switch movie, right? Robin Williams is taking the persona and perspective of somebody else in a different body in that film. You get Shazam. You get 13 going on 30. You get 17 again. The point I'm trying to bring up here is those are, I just named almost every one of those films as a classic in its own right. And I think one of the reasons is it's a literal metaphor of walking a day in somebody else's shoes, right? Like that's precisely what the point of those types of movies is, is you don't understand my perspective. I don't understand your perspective. Well, how do we fix that in story form? Magic thing happens and we switch places. And now I have to experience life from your point of view. And, you know, I think one of the things we try to convey in, in Family Switch is the idea that, you know, kids and teens going through the problems of their life are, are different than the problems and perils of being a parent, right? And so mom and dad are thinking about how do we get food on the table and how do I make sure you're organized and how do I prep you to make sure you're successful for the next stage of your life and you've got to be focused on X and Y and Z. 
And the kid's perspective at that moment is generally sort of like, what's going on in my daily life with my friends? What's the activity in school that I'm concerned about? And it's, it's just a different version of sort of, you know, what you're experiencing in your life and what you're focused on ultimately. And neither one of those are necessarily right or wrong. It's just, that's the perspective, right? So I think one of my favorite things about the movie is, you know, mom and dad get to experience a day in the life of high school again. And when you're 20, 30 years removed from high school, you forget how hard and scary and difficult and, you know, that is. And at the same time, the kids get to experience being mom and dad for a few minutes and the responsibilities and the pressures that come along with that. I think one of my favorite moments in the movie is there's a scene where, where Jen and Ed have switched bodies with their kids and these moms come over for like mom supper club. And Jen and Ed, they are the teens mentally, but the adults physically. And they're trying to figure out, like, how do we get rid of these moms? We got to we got to move on with you know what we need to do here. And their idea is, well, they're here for supper clubs. So we just need to make them a meal really quick. And they have this back and forth dialogue of like, well, how hard can it be to make dinner? I've seen mom do it, you know, a thousand times. It's got to be super easy. Hard cut to absolute chaos in the kitchen. And, you know, it's just a total disaster. And it's a from a, you know, the perspective of, of a now parent, it's a fun idea to have the kids have to go through a seemingly mundane task that mom and dad make look super easy and realize like, whoa, that actually was a lot harder. <laughs> than. And of course, we take liberty with it and go to the ultimate extreme of what it is. But symbolically, I like the idea that, you know, mom and dad realize, wow, it's a lot harder to be a teen and a kid in today's world than we remember. And vice versa, ironically, another body switch movie, it's it's harder for the kids get to realize that it's hard to be a parent as well. And and that's, I think, the message of the film that that, that resonates. I love that. And it just it, it was perspective building overall. I mean, one, it, you, you see things from your kid's point of view. They're invited to see things from your point of view. Your the movie encourages you to get out of your bubble and and remember that you're in a bubble, whether you realize it or not. You have to yep. consciously see beyond it. Which I I love that too. So there, it it instigated some conversations with our kids, just about seeing things from their point of view, seeing also what we can learn from them. Because as parents, you're always thinking about what are you teaching them, and you're not always stepping back and thinking what can I learn from them. And especially I think with the world so rapidly changing and generations seem feeling very different. One, they're different from the past, but they're also rapidly changing too. And it's important to pay attention to these things. Yeah. So now you. You were talking about the experience of, of, of watching a movie together and how, how special it is to be able to do that. Where do you think movie making is going to go? You know, the, the, we don't have drive-in movie theaters anymore. There, was a, there have been waves of sort of threat that the going to the movies is going to decline. I've, that fortunately, that doesn't seem like it's held. It seems like it's on its way back, but I don't have anything to back that up with. Yeah. And so I'm curious, since you're close to it, you have the streaming services that are now putting it in, in theaters, but also having it at home. Where do you where do you see fine to comment on sort of the business model and strategy in the industry? Yeah. But I'm I'm especially from let's say from a family's point of view. How are they going to yeah. be enjoying these stories in 20 years? Yeah, look, it's the billion dollar question in our business, right? Is sort of what does the future of entertainment look like? And I think it's 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 obviously undeniable that the rise of streaming in the last you know, five years in particular, but five to 10, because the trend was happening. The The rise of streaming has absolutely disrupted the business model of, of Hollywood, right? So what I mean by that is, it used to be that you would make a movie, call it Family Switch, right? That movie 10 years ago would have been a holiday theatrical release, probably around this time of year, right? Call it Thanksgiving adjacent. You would have released the movie, you would have had a theatrical run on the film, and the only time to see that movie would have been during a theatrical run. And then there would have been a sacred protected window where you then couldn't see the movie, right? So meaning you've got two months to see the movie, comes out November and, you know, all the way through December and is probably leaving theaters in January. And then it's not straight on a platform. They wait six months or so. It's a protected window. And then you can go purchase or the movie physically with physical media, right? A DVD or a VHS if you're that old or what the that model's gone, like just completely, completely disrupted, right? Even now, COVID in particular was an aspect of speeding that up, right? So when COVID happened and theaters were literally shut down, a lot of the studios were sitting on completed content trying to figure out what do we do with this? And there was a movie, Trolls, 
which was one of the first ones to go straight to digital. So Trolls, the animated film, was made for theatrical release. It was supposed to come out, it was either March or April of 2020. The world was shut down. The studio decided, let's release it digitally only. And it was a massive success, probably too much so, because every other studio said, wait a minute, we can do the same thing. We can go straight to streaming there. So you, you, you juxtapose that against the rise of Netflix specifically, right? Which was a direct to consumer business that blew up first Blockbuster, but then a lot of the traditional legacy media studios, right? The Warner Brothers, the Sony's, the Universal's where Netflix allows you to watch anything you want at any time. And they don't do a theatrical. They are subscription-based model, which everybody knows, but the effect of that is profound, okay? So Family Switch is going to be released on Netflix, which means it does not have a theatrical run. So when somebody asks, like, how did the movie do? The only way to sort of judge the metric of that is to see how many times people clicked on it, right? And Netflix keeps a lot of that data sort of behind the scenes and, and they'll share aspects of it with the filmmaking team, but not all of it. And so you don't even really know. You can tell if, if a movie absolutely works and is in its top 10 or something along those lines, you know, you're successful and you can at least understand that. But the revenue generated by an individual movie at Netflix is more or less de minimis, right? There is no box office for Family Switch. You can't open up, you know, the, the box office numbers on a Monday after release on a Friday and see how did the movie do? It doesn't work that way. And, and that has totally disrupted the economic model, right? One of the reasons the strike happened for the writers and the actors, which just ended recently, is because how, it was everybody trying to figure out what do we do in a world where there is no economic upside when a movie overperforms, right? So Yesterday is a good example of that. Yesterday was the number one movie on Netflix. It was the most successful family movie in the history of the studio, right? Had nobody watched it, the economics for everybody involved in the film, from the actor to you know the, the the last person on the set, would have been the exact same. Versus, if a movie has a you know massive theatrical run and and take Oppenheimer right or Barbie, two movies this summer that absolutely crushed theatrically, the participants on the talent side that had any sort of participation in the economics of that film did really really well on it, right? So had that had Barbie been released only on a streaming platform, there would have been additional economics there. It's interesting because it really is in this very, very established, very powerful, culturally powerful, economically powerful industry. You're, it's being pulled in di very different directions from as far as the as the business model goes. For you as a producer, do you have to do you have to be a, a, adaptable for both? Do you have to pick a lane? How do you how do you as a producer navigate that? The type of movie that is re released theatrically today is almost entirely IP driven, right? Or massive star driven, which is almost a version of having IP. Okay, so you look at Barbie, and that's one of the biggest toys in the history of the world. And by the way, that movie they were it was in development for twenty years. They were trying to figure out what is the right take on that movie. I watched it. I loved. It. I loved it. By the way. Yeah. And, and, and as did much of the world, right? They, they, they mailed it in that regard. But the type of movie, because it costs so much to market a film effectively for worldwide theatrical release. And when I say a lot, I mean, you know, 50, 100, 150 million dollars for the big movies. Because it costs so much to market those films, the studios can only really justify massive spends on budgets for something that has a pre-existing built-in audience, Right. Barbie being an example of that, right? The Avengers, the Marvel movies of the world, there are built-in audiences there and the studios have a, a general understanding that the, the audience is going to show up versus a new piece of IP or a new idea. Call it a body switch comedy, like Family Switch, right? Technically based off of a book, a children's book called Bedtime for Mommy. So it has some sort of residual, call it IP value in and of itself, but really it's a high concept idea at its core, right? If I say I've got a body switch comedy starring Jennifer Garner and Ed Helms and the whole family's gonna switch, that's my pitch. I just told it to you in 15 seconds. You have a general understanding as the consumer of sort of what that movie is or what that movie at least wants to be, right? And so you can understand like, oh, I love Jen, I love Ed, body switch comedies, I love those. Oh, it's holiday too. Like, yes, click on that, right? When you can digest or understand 
the theme or crux of a film based on the IP, right? Oh, it's Spider-Man. Oh, it's Superman. Oh, it's Avengers. Oh, it's Barbie. Oh, it's Oppenheimer, right? All of a sudden, I understand kind of what that movie is. So I think the types of movies that are going to be theatrical are going to be these big IP-driven tentpole-type films, okay? The streamers will have the opportunity to invest in more original concept at probably lower budgets, but it's because they don't live or die by the economic success of that specific film itself, right? As a platform as a whole, they have to get consumers that want to look at their content and consume and watch their content. So I think that's the, the best answer that I can give you is for me as, a, as an independent producer myself, I'm always looking for a high concept idea. Yesterday is a great example of that. One day a year, mom and dad are not allowed to say no to their kids. The kids get to run the day. So a family is going to have an adventure over a 24 hour period of time, right? Like I understand what that movie is. You put Jennifer Garner in it and it's like, okay, yes, I know what that movie wants to be. And so you have, you have the, you have these trends in the business that are, it seem like they're pulling against each other, which could be very explosive. One, you have big box, go to theater wide range of, of content. And then you have these streaming services. So what, what is, what is going to be the difference maker for these films in the future? And then for you as a producer and an entrepreneur trying to navigate very, an already kind of counterintuitive business model. And, and now you're having to navigate two competing counterintuitive business models. What goes through your head? What do you see as the trends? What do you see as the industry? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, <laughs> It's again, the billion dollar question is what does the future of the business look like in terms of what types of, of projects get turned into movies and, and are they theatrical or are they streaming, right? So I think on the one hand, at the end of the day, I will say the words have to be on the page, right? If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, which means you have to have a compelling story with great characters, period, end of story, right? If you don't have a great script, you're not going to have a movie, right? So the first thing that you've got to do is either find a great piece of material that you can convert into a great script or ultimately a great script, right? So looking at it from 10,000 feet, for me, the first thing I'm looking for is, is just, is it IP, right? And that can mean, is it a best-selling book? Is it a great comic? Those are the obvious versions of that. But I think another sort of underappreciated version of, of intellectual property is life rights, right? So as an example of that, we're working on this Bruce Lee movie. Bruce Lee, in some respects, is like a real life superhero, right? And our partner on that project is, is Bruce Lee's daughter, right? Who controls the life rights to the estate. So that's an area that I try to look at as well as sort of the, the true story side of things, right? Is a, is a version of IP. And I think children's books are, by, by their nature, they have to be high concept in some respects, right? Like it has to be a simple idea that's easily explainable, right? Yes Day is a version of that. One day a year, mom and dad can't say no, the kids get to run the day. It's a very simple premise that a four or five-year-old can understand, but it's also a very simple premise that can tur be turned into a big movie, right? Bedtime for Mom, which was the inspiration for Family Switch. Is the book is about a little girl putting her mom to bed using the routine that a mom and dad commonly, you know, time to brush your teeth, you know, turn off the TV. Can I have a drink of water? It's that routine flipped, right? So again, a very simple, but a high concept idea at the core of it. So I'm always looking for something that is, is high concept and easily explainable. Again, family switch, body switch, comedy, Jen Garner, Ed Helms, switch with their son and daughter, baby switches with dogs, set it over the holidays. You understand what that movie is in a very simplistic form, right? And so I think that's something that gets studio executives excited, particularly when you can attach high level talent to it, right? So you're looking for a high concept idea or you're looking for something rooted or centered um, in intellectual property itself. And then you've got to develop that into a really, really compelling version of the story, right? So get the words on the page, have an incredible script. And if you can connect all those dots, you then have a chance. That's what enables you to be able to attract A-list talent, right? Somebody like a Jennifer Garner or an Ed Helms or in the, in the version of Payne Hustlers and Emily Blunt or a Chris Evans. And you're trying to get to those people on these types of projects because that is another sort of anchor point for studios to, as they're evaluating the project internally, does it have a pre-existing audience, right? Is it a big idea that's easily explainable, which means easily marketable? And does it have movie stars attached to it? If it has movie stars, 
I have a chance at being able to attract an audience. If it's a big idea, I have a chance at being able to attract an audience. If it's IP based, I have a chance at being able to attract an audience, right? So that's kind of holistically what you're looking at for there. And I think the streamers are more likely right now to invest in original content because they don't have a library to lean on where they can remake their stuff. You look at what Disney's making right now, and I'd say half of it is a remake of something that they already did in animated form or in the Pixar form that they're now making live action, right? And it's because they can lean on that classic IP, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, or, or whichever it may be. And they know that there's a built-in audience for that material, right? Netflix doesn't have Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin back at sitting in this library that they can lean on. So they're more likely to invest in original content, which is probably one of re the reasons that the last couple of movies you know, that I've worked on have been with Netflix because they're original ideas in that sense. Would you, by the way, that was just super fascinating, just the way you broke down these sort of big, big block, you know, kind of trends or pieces in the industry. What, I started getting a little worried that you're going to see this kind of consolidation of uh, power and money in the business, and you're only going to see fam famous actors re recycled and simple stories recycled. But as I was thinking about it, beneath the surface, it seems like there's a good amount of creative destruction going on that we yeah. don't know. And, and even in the earlier days of Hollywood, it was very driven by studios kind of just plucking an actor and saying that you're, you're the anointed one. And so is that true? Oh, there's, there's so much to say on that. I mean, look, first thing I'd say is we had an Alder event recently with a, a legendary CAA agent and he, he, he lamented, and I think correctly so at Hollywood's inability to to, to create, not that they create, but let's just call it that for purposes of this conversation, to create the next generation of movie stars, right? Who is that leading man and leading lady at age 30 right now? Where, where's the Leonardo DiCaprio of, of you know, this next generation? And I'd argue that he, he's probably correct in that regard specifically, that the movies that we're making right now are not generating what traditionally would be called classic like A-list movie stars. But I would also argue that you are potentially looking at the wrong screen because Hollywood doesn't control content anymore in the way that it used to, right? So instead of looking at the big screen um, at your local theater, you're probably looking at your phone at the big, you know, TikTok or Instagram star, right? So I made the comment at that event that, you know, Mr. Beast is probably more famous today than Leonardo DiCaprio was at his same age or at his peak. Because, you know, that man has 100 million eyeballs if he just turns his phone on. And, and it's a different sort of medium. So on the one hand, you've got the sort of decentralization of content creation, right? Anybody today with a phone can theoretically reach an audience of billions. And that was not the case 15, 20, 50 well, years ago, right? And there's, another, there's an extension of this too, which is where do you find the art? And, and one behind you is a poster of Lights Out. And that what your first big movie that you you y'all had got as a YouTube short, and yep. then you and then I love your point about children's books. You know, it's like oh, go look for children's books, or and so it, it's around. It's around. You just got to be looking for it and helping the people to be creating it. Now, another question: What types of stories do you think need to be told or are going to be told? And let me give a, a, some quick kind of contextual thoughts. One, at a higher level, I'm curious about this tension between to what extent does Hollywood shape culture or reflect culture? I'm also curious about beneath the surface, are we starting to, to say more of? And so as it, I was, it was very, at a time when family as an institution is declining and you know, families are not spending as much time together anymore, they're not staying together as much anymore, and that has massive societal consequences. But here you guys have a movie out about a, a family that's bonded. Recently, my family and I, we all started watching Schitt's Creek together. And it's endearing because you have this sort of dysfunctional family, ostensibly dysfunctional, but they really do love each other. And, yeah. and they don't say it. The emotions are not fluid. But at the end of the day, they do. And they're there together. And so it, it, to me, when I see that, I think it reflects culture of you know, kind of like, oh, ew, family time. But at the end of the day, you want to be with your family. And that's sort of the shit's creek. Or for or for family switch, you get the like the nerdy dad and the and the and the you know, 
the alpha mom just really trying to create something special for her family. And then the kids are just sort of like kind of lost in their own world. One is trying to overperform and at sports and one is trying to overperform at school and they just need to be. And so there's that overperformance thing that yep. and it's just, just be, just be with your family. And so I know there was a lot of context that I, I said I was just going to share, but I'm curious, are there more, are there themes that you could tell that Hollywood is just trying to get certain stories out there is, is sort of what Hollywood's pushing? But I'm also curious from your point of view is, is what do you think there's a hunger for in the culture? And not, obviously, I think there is a hunger for more family content. You're yeah. seeing Christian films take off in ways that they had yeah. before. And so what are the stories that are trying to be told? What are the stories that are uh, either from the culture at large that there's a hunger demand for it or that Hollywood's trying to push? I think, look, I think the, the pandemic changed a lot in this regard, right? I think we had a golden age of what I would call the elevated genre film. And sort of when I entered the business and I think Lights Out sort of is a, is a version of that, right? You had Lights Out, Don't Breathe, Split, Get Out, all these really smart, promising young woman, really smart, elevated film in the genre space. When I say genre space, I mean, you know, horror, thriller, supernatural, that sort of a type of movie that's saying something about society, but has a dark undertone and, you know, sensibility to it at the end of the day. I think the pandemic sort of switched. These are very broad strokes, right? But the pandemic turned the consumer who was stuck at home with their family for the most part onto something that was wanted to be a little more lighter and aspirational in my opinion, right? And I think Ted Lasso is actually the best sort of version of kind of representing that, that switch, right? And Ted Lasso came into the zeitgeist at the perfect time, right? It was in the middle of the pandemic that that show came out. And I think it was unexpectedly well done to a lot of people and to a lot of families. And everybody was waiting, myself included, was waiting for that lead character to take this dark turn into a weird place, right? And it just never happened. It was a genuinely sincere guy being sincere and doing good for good sake, because that's the right thing to do. And that felt fresh and distinct because we hadn't seen it on screen in a really long time, like Breaking Bad, which is kind of the opposite version of that. And by the way, I love both. I love Breaking Bad. I love Ted Lasso. But Breaking Bad was the exact opposite of that, right? It was literally the rise of this drug kingpin who was supposed to be this high school chemistry teacher. And, you know, it's, it wasn't working out with the chemistry. So all of a sudden he used that chemistry to build an empire of, of destruction, right? And that is what really enticed audiences. And obviously that was told at an incredibly high elevated level as well. And again, I'm a huge fan of that. But Ted Lasso is the opposite of that. And I think we'd seen everybody was chasing for a while the wire and breaking bad and game of thrones and going dark and 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 sort of telling a version of, of philosophically kind of like here's what humanity is and where it, it, it tends to go and then something like ted lasso comes out and it's like yeah but we have this over here too and i think audiences resonated with it because it was sort of good for goodness's sake right <laughs> the holidays are coming up so you know stealing a line from from the classic song so my point is is i think there's a lane right now in that co-viewing live action family space where there's not a ton of elevated, sophisticated storytelling being told. And when I say that, I mean like a version of a live action Pixar movie. And that's a lane that I think needs to be occupied more in an area where I'm focusing a lot of my energy is to find movies that everybody can watch, have universal themes, and but, but say something generally positive or good about the world, because there's absolutely a, a, a place for the darker movies. And I'm developing a few of those as well. But I think right now that, that people and families want to utilize entertainment as an escape and want to do so in a positive, aspirational and inspirational way. So a Karate Kid, a Rudy, a Forrest Gump, movies that like in the 90s, they were making a lot more of. And I think Hollywood tended to get away from. I find that there's a demand for that that type of elevated storytelling content that's inspirational and aspirational, and that's what I'm trying to focus, you know, a lot of my energy on right now. I love it. One of the one of the things that I love is is it's an escape with a purpose. Like it's an escape that yeah. teaches you when you're on the journey. And what I'm hearing from you is that there's there's some demand, whether there's demand on the you know demand ish on the supply side from the studio sort of pushing something, but also out in the culture there's a hunger for things that ground us, you know, family grounds us. There's a, a you know, you mentioned uh, Bruce Lee, 
yes, that's on the surface, it's action, it's Bruce Lee. But when you study Bruce Lee, it's really all about wisdom. Yeah. And an approach to life. Absolutely. It's all about that. And so I, I see that even when you take something dark, another family movie, so to speak, or a, a movie about a family is The Righteous Gemstones. And you, you know, you got the patriarch of the family who's really wrestling with, oh my gosh, my wealth and ambitions ruined my kid yeah. <laughs> the whole trajectory. And and then and I think that people want that is dark, but it is something where you you're gonna try to root for somebody. Well, there's also a relatability component to it that I think is very important. And let me let me talk about that for half a second, right? So I think Top Gun Maverick and Oppenheimer are both examples of this. And what I mean by that is Top Gun Maverick, which absolutely massively overperformed at the box office. I think one of the reasons that it did so, and it wasn't just Tom Cruise, there is absolutely a Tom Cruise effect, but Mission Impossible came out a couple of months after and didn't do nearly as well as Top Gun did. And Top Gun, in the wake of 15 years of superhero movies, where it was the superhero films getting the big budgets, and you've got Captain America and Hulk and Thor and Spider-Man and Batman and Superman all fighting the bad guys. Here comes a real person in a real jet with a real mission, right? And he could actually get hurt, right? Like Superman ain't dying in the Superman movie, right? Like that's the, it's the great conundrum of that entire franchise is like, what do you do when you know, you're perfect? Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick, the audience sat there and said, that's a real person doing a real thing that could be me. They saw themselves, right? And it was like, that guy, the, his, his life is in jeopardy when he's in that jet and he's fighting. I thought Maverick was going to die three times in that movie, right? And so I'm on the edge of my seat because I was, I was really invested in that story. Oppenheimer is not stakes in the same way that Oppenheimer himself was going to die, but you had the battle of good versus evil, the ultimate battle of good versus evil in World War II, where you've got the Nazis trying to develop this technology and we've got to get there first because if we don't use it, they will. And here is a man trying to do it and bearing the sort of you know anxiety and pressure of that. And it was a real person doing a real thing that had real consequences, right? And yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why audiences responded to both Maverick and to Oppenheimer in a much more, in, in, in a way overperformance type of way, it's because we like to be inspired by people doing real things and, and real stakes, right? In a real setting. And that's a real person. And even though Maverick, obviously the storyline is fictional, it's based off of the Top Guns, right? Which is a, which are real fighter pilots based out of, you know, Southern California. And, and Oppenheimer is a real person who did a real undeniably consequential thing. And I think audiences want to have a relatability to some of the live action movies. And this is, to be very clear, this is not me knocking the superhero genre. I love the superhero genre. We're revisiting them with my kids right now. We're showing them Avengers and that whole storyline. And they love the interconnectedness of them. But at the end of the day, like superheroes are, are not that relatable. They're aspirational and inspirational in some respects, right? We all wish we had a little Batman in us. We all wish we had a little Spider-Man in us. But at the end of the day, they're not real people. And so when you can make movies about somebody like a Bruce Lee or an Oppenheimer, I, I think audiences, if you can do it in a world-class way, and that's always the trick, right? Trying to do it in a world-class way, I think you can find an audience. That's so interesting. So another thing that people are hungry for, what I'm hearing, is they want to be reminded that they have agency. That yeah. they, that you could, you could, like, that's why these stories, Rocky, you know, it reminds you that you could achieve. Because I do think, we know statistically that the, the rise of deaths of despair and loneliness that we are seeing this, that people feel helpless, people feel powerless. You're also seeing very dominant narratives in social media and in news that everything's about power and you're, you're being oppressed by someone. And I think that there is a real opportunity to remind people that you could chart your own course. You just got to do the work. You got to dig within and you, and you could find your way. So speaking of, of one's agency and finding their way, I have a, I have a few questions with you before you, before we, about you, before we kind of land the plane, if that's okay. Sure. Of course. What was, when you were embarking on this and the last several years, you, you've overcome a lot and achieved a lot. What is, what was some of what is a lesson that you learned when you entered the business that was maybe a tough lesson to learn, or you had to learn it the hard way? Uh, it's a great look. It, had I known today what 
at the time I left, right? So you're referring to, you know, I left a, a job at one of the great law firms on the planet, this place, Quinn Emanuel, to become and then, you know, a film producer. And had I known then what I know today, would I have made the leap? I, it's, it's more debatable. I probably still would have, but it's certainly more debatable. And it, it's in part because there's a Herculean borderline impossibility of the task of getting a movie made. Every single movie or television show is a miracle in its own way. It's a business startup. It's a story. It's a thousand elements that could fall apart at any given moment. And it's, you know, it takes a perseverance that I probably did not appreciate initially when I started out of this undying sense of never giving up. And it's in part because the apparatus and infrastructure of the Hollywood system, the lawyers, the agents, the managers, the studios, right? The financiers, it's designed to tell you no, right? You've got to get through a mountain of no in order to get to a yes, right? And, and if you in any way, shape or form falter in that sort of steadfastness of believing in a project and the vision of a project, if you let that negativity or that no get to you, it's over, right? You've got <laughs> to just continue to keep your eye on the prize, for lack of a better way to describe that, and keep pushing forward. Because if you falter for a minute, there's a million other projects that a million other people are trying to put together at that same time, and they're going to get past you if you stop. So I think that that, for me, is probably the biggest takeaway today versus then, is how hard it is and how you cannot let anything deter your eternal optimism of the ability to pull that project off. Because the second you do, it's over for that project. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of all these questions that follow up, but I know we're, we're short on time. What is, what are you currently reading or learning? I tend to, because I read so many scripts in my work, it's hard for me to do leisure reading these times because reading to me is sourcing material, right? I'm either trying to identify a great voice, right? Does this person have a mastery of storytelling and structure in a way that, you know, I can be, we, we can make into a movie or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through, you know, I use Twitter X, whatever you want to call it now. That's my newspaper, right? So I, back in the day, I was a newspaper guy. I would literally, I liked to consume content in that regard because I like to understand what is happening in the world because that is the sort of, the sort of real time story of, of humanity. Right. And so I now, I'm scrolling through, you know, social media as a way to identify and find compelling stories and storylines, right? So if you see something going viral, I look at it and say, why is that going viral? Is there something to the person who did that that is particularly intriguing or interesting? Or is there something in the storyline itself that is particularly inspiring or interesting? So, you know, maybe that is a negative insofar as I'm kind of not shutting off the sort of like producer mode, but it's kind of constantly on at all times and trying to figure out like, can I, can I take that idea? Can I take that concept? Can I take that voice? Can I take that person and turn it into a story that will resonate? Right. That's how I'm sort of viewing the daily habits of my reading consumption, if that makes sense. And by the way, I'm not necessarily saying that's a, a good or bad thing to do it that way, but that's the reality that I'm operating for now. Yeah, I appreciate that. What are the three values, qualities, characteristics, or virtues of a citizen leader? I think integrity is probably at the top of that. Having a moral compass and operating within that, right, is, is really, really important. So I would say integrity is one. I think empathy has to be part of it as well, because, you know, not to take it necessarily back to a movie like Family Switch, but part of the theme of Family Switch is trying to understand the perspective of somebody else, right? And so being empathetic with that person's perspective and with that person's storyline and with that person's struggles and triumphs. And so I think, you know, we have a little bit of a lack of, of, of empathy right now in our society and understanding that somebody might have a perspective that's different than yours, but that doesn't make them a bad person. That doesn't make them an evil person. We're just so divided right now as a society, particularly in America. And I've long told people, you know, in, I think the greatest export that America has, or when I say greatest, I mean, most influential is indeed the content of Hollywood, right? The stories that this industry tells matter to the world. And I do think that Hollywood influences culture and culture influences Hollywood, but the stories that we tell matter. 
And so I try to act with integrity. I try to find stories that can generate some version of empathy. And I'll, I'll, I'll be, if I were to put, pick a third one, I say patriotism, but I don't mean that in the negative sense of that term, if that makes sense, right? I, I, I find myself incredibly fortunate to, to be American and born in America, which at least enabled me to pursue a passion of mine on my own terms. And, and I, I think it's the greatest country that ever lived in the history of existence. And I'm proud of that fact. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. We've messed up many, many, many times, but the, we strive to be better, I think, with every generation. And I don't know that that's necessarily reflected in the political leadership and establishment that we have right now on both sides of the aisle. But I think as a, as a citizen statesman, that's a really important thing to try to do is to you know act in a way that your children can emulate and respect, right? Right. Well said. Well said. Yeah. And so my last question is, can you give me your, your favorite memory with Alder or your, just your favorite thing about it? I, I mean, look, I've met some of the most important people in my life. And when I say important, I mean friends, right? My, some of my greatest friends are from Alder and that's just, a fact, undeniable truth. And so I think it was, you know, first time meeting like Patrick Wade, who is now godfather to my daughter and a partner of mine and one of my closest friends, right? I remember meeting him the very first time at an Alder event. So I would put that up there as, you know, I was just like, man, that is a fascinating guy. I just want to get to know that person. I remember the first time I met you and I was like, that's a fascinating guy. And I remember I'd heard of Michael Davidson from back in the college days because of what you were doing at that time. And I was like, I know that name and I know that guy and that's an interesting person. And it's just that to me, the greatest part of Alder is the people. And every time I walk away from an event, I find myself inspired to be a better person because the people that I was just around are great people and they're passionate about the world. They care about the world and they're trying to do something to make it better. And that combination is rare to find in a room. And every time I walk out of an Alder room, I, I feel that. Awesome. Awesome. You are the man, Ben. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best and good luck to go create beautiful art that elevates, uplifts, inspires, and I we're here to help. I appreciate that, my friend. It's always a pleasure being here, Michael. Keep crushing the way that you do. Awesome. And uh, if I can ever be helpful on anything, you let me know. And just encouraging everybody, go see Family Switch and tell people about it. So spread the word. And enjoy it. Have a good time with your kids. Amen to that. All right. Thank you, Ben. I hope you liked that conversation. I certainly did. I learned a lot. And so if you did, or if you just want to help out, then please like, comment, subscribe, and go talk to your friends about it. Thank you.